Are you a fan of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores podcast? Do you want to support the show and show off your love for LTGW? Look no further than You Can Do Merch Store, brought to you by host and creator, Nancy Adair. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, the host and creator of Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores the podcast that brings you stories from both the dark side and the light side of addiction and recovery. And each week we have marvelous guests in this season three. They are all artists in recovery. So today's guest, I'm so pleased to have with me Meredith Mustard, who is a painter a printmaker, a calligrapher, and a bookmaker. And that's not a bookie, a bookmaker. <laughs> so thank you so much, Meredith, for agreeing to be on LTGW with me. Thank you for having me. And Meredith, when we say that you're an artist in recovery, what are you recovering from? I am a food addict. So that is my main recovery. Uh, I'd say probably I'm a codependent as well. And I could qualify as an alcoholic, but my recovery work is with food addiction. Nice. And how long have you been in recovery? Um, let's see, probably about 40 years, but very seriously for the last 24. What makes recovery serious and not serious? Well, um, I played around with going to meetings for many years without really uh, putting any boundaries on my food. And, and that's my main culprit in my life with my addiction. You know, I did a 12-step uh, program for 20 years before I found my way to one that is referred to in the 12 step community as the Navy seals of food addiction. <laughs> um, and the worst thing about the former program, I'm trying to remain anonymous enough by not mentioning them by name uh, was that you created your own food plan. And for a food addict, making my own decisions about what I put in my mouth was really insane. So it didn't work. Oh my. But I resisted the other program because of the commitment, which I called rigidity at the time, but it was really my reservation about committing and going to regular meetings and having a sponsor who I talked to, who I told the truth to. That's mm -hmm. even more serious than just talking regularly with a sponsor is opening up and being on it. That mm -hmm. took me a long journey. Yes. Ditto. That's very much what <laughs> it's been many years, many years of just drifting around the edges before I was ready to dive in. So tell me a little bit about your art. Hmm. Um, well, I'll tell you a little bit about my journey with with doing art. I've I've considered myself an artist, I think, pretty seriously since I was in third grade. I mean, I knew I, I recognized that this was something that was really important to me. Um, and so I continued, you know, that that got me through high school. 
that and playing basketball. Um, and, you know, and I did end up eventually getting to art school in New York. Um, and, you know, a lot of my path, especially going to art school was an experience of I would really love some artist, you know, that I would put on a pedestal. And then I would paint. I was a painter primarily at that point. And I would, I think I was trying to paint their paintings. And, and I was a very competent painter, but there was nothing to write home about. Um, and then um, when I did finally get abstinent with food, when I really put the boundaries on the food and I really worked a program and a spiritual program around it, um, almost immediately my paintings changed. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was remarkable to me even, my experience changed. Before you talk about the change in your art, I want to go back to being a serious artist since third grade. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think of third grade as serious artists. Although I did have the OBGYN who delivered my son said she practiced surgery on her dolls. You know, there's a a sense Mm -hmm. of knowing. Mm -hmm. And um, I also heard, uh, I don't remember how to source it, but this quote about or story about a little boy that goes to this man and says, you know, what do you do for work? And he says, I teach adults how to draw. And the little boy said, you mean they forget? (laughs) (laughs) Like, Like art is a natural part or creativity is a natural part of our young lives. And then it gets for many somehow squashed. Yeah. Yeah. And so now I'll let you tell the audience about your shift in your art. Well, and, and I can tell you about being an artist in third grade. I remember drawing um, a locomotive engine, which is not usually what the girls were drawing anyway. But I drew it. And my memory, of course, I don't have it anymore. My memory was that I just kept in details. And so I had all these details. And then the teacher said, now get out your crayons and color it. And I was like, no way. I'm not coloring this. This is a great drawing. This is this is like to me it was important and it was complete. And putting crayons on it would just crayons are so crude. You know, they would mess it up. This is third grade. But well, I, I love knew. it. I, I I love the idea that you knew when it was complete because as an artist myself, I think that was one of the more difficult challenges in the beginning was for me overworking work because I didn't know that magical stopping point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what straw broke the camel's back to get you into serious recovery around the food addiction? What was um, it that, you know, we call it hitting your bottom? My experience was that I was in a fog that I could not see clearly. The food just fogged my my actual physical vision. It fogged my brain. I couldn't take um, actions on my own behalf. I had a very hard time getting into the studio. My mind was very busy with, you know, a lot of self-doubt and um, criticism, self-criticism. So I got to a point where I said, you know what, I'm not going to live that long because um, I came into this program where I got serious when I was 50. And my family, my parents, my grandparents going all, all the way up the line did not live long into their 60s, maybe. That was it. And I thought, do I want to live the rest of my life this way in this fog? And even though I had really 
backed away from putting those limits on my eating because I wanted it to magically get resolved. I, somehow there was going to be a magic wand that was going to come out of the sky and say, boing, that is not a problem for you anymore. And, and what I was getting, it, it wasn't going to change without me doing something different. So I got willing. Willingness. And then with the willingness and the boundaries came clarity and your work changed. How did oh it God. change? Profoundly. Um, I started playing. I started having fun with it wasn't like a serious that I had to prove myself or prove anything. I still had those voices. So I would be in the studio and I'd be painting. And at that point, I was putting my hands in the paint. I mean, I was really, I had kind of a classical art school education. And all of a sudden I, I was just playing and this voice would come in my head and say, what are you doing that for? Nobody's going to like this. This is really weird. And I spoke back to that voice. And I remember very specifically saying, well, thanks for sharing, but I'm having fun here. So back off. And then I just kept going. Oh, I have so much to say about that. Having a dialogue with the inner critic. <laughs> and first, I wanted to tell you a little story about a, a woman artist that I collected after she had a shift in her artwork. It's Alison Goodwin. And she used to do plein air painting. And then her work changed dramatically. And I fell in love with it. And she called those paintings inner landscape. And mm -hmm. what she did differently is she got on the floor and she played. Mm -hmm. And they were mostly with oil pastels and just I still cherish a couple of them that hang in my dining room and have for decades. Um, so the inner critic is something I talk about a lot. And I think that it's pervasive with artists that were more si sensitive than the average person. And the inner critic, I referred to mine as the inner terrorist for a long time. You know, It wanted nothing short than to annihilate me. And um I heard on another podcast recently, this man said the inner critic has no crisis in confidence. And it was Alan Berger, I think, said that. And I was like, oh, my God, that is so true. When my inner voice tells me that I'm a shit or that my work doesn't count or, you know, it's not good or good enough. I believe it because it's so it sounds so confident. And <laughs> I have learned over a passage of time, not to discredit it or even try to argue with it or certainly not to get rid of it like bully a bully, it just doesn't work. I've I've come to acknowledge that the inner critic was always there to protect me. Hmm. And I say, thank you. And then I say, no, thank you. Like <laughs> I say, thank you for your concern. <laughs> Here, have a cup of tea. I'm going on and, you know, finishing this work or I'm doing this this way or this piece is complete. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what I was doing. Yeah. I, you know, you speak on, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to have tea with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, well, so. a lot of people, you know, I, I named a talk, uh, how to retire the inner critic. And then I changed the name to how to embrace the inner critic. And no one wanted that talk. Like, because they have that, like, I can't, I can't embrace my inner critic or I can't embrace my anger. I can't embrace that shadow side of myself. So mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. and for me, even this podcast, you know, it's the dark and the light side. Like I really think that both coexist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. tell me about a dark moment in recovery. Dark moment in recovery. Hmm. Well, I mean, some 
difficult things happened while I was in recovery, one of which was my husband got dementia. Um, and that that was that was hard. I think I backed away from a lot of my artwork during that time and just said, just just play simple. I made earrings, real simple earrings with beads. I collected beads and I made earrings. I could sit down and make a pair of earrings, you know, in 10 minutes. And, um, and you know, it was, I think it was a rough time because I didn't know what was happening, actually. He was changing tremendously for the first couple of years before there was any recognition, oh, there really was something wrong with his brain. So during that time, I would, um, you know, I would go into the studio and I really had a hard time painting that, you know, there were, life was just impinging on it. So that was, uh, that was a tricky time. Yeah. I, it, it sounds like there wasn't enough bandwidth for both. Right. Kind of like that. Yeah. And how long did you care for your spouse before he passed? Um, so I, you know, there were a couple of years of that going downhill, not knowing what was going on. And then there were a couple of years of um, eventually getting him into care and overseeing it while he was still able to relate. And then that was gone. So I'd say altogether, there were like four years in there that were really kind of lost to me. And um, I did make a choice to have a life. I know there were some people I knew who were caring for spouses who kind of gave their life up and just completely threw themselves into it. And we very fortunately and miraculously had some long-term care insurance that made it possible for me to have a life and have him be cared for. I'm very glad to hear that. I have a couple of good friends that are going through it right now. Mm -hmm. One who I just spent a week with at the beach doing quilting, and she had, I think they were that her nephew and his wife came up to care for her husband in her absence and that he can't be left uh, no. to care for himself. So uh, that's gotta be really, it's a nasty disease dementia. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was telling someone that my grandmother passed of Alzheimer's disease many years ago, and I'd heard that it skipped a generation and uh, you know, that made me more prone and and I was nervous about it and someone said to me well you know by the time it's really a concern you won't know what's going on <laughs> so <laughs> don't worry about it <laughs> but uh you know it's that beginning stage when you don't understand what's wrong but you can't find words or can't understand the direction you know get directionally challenged which actually is happening to me already so <laughs> yeah, right there is that <laughs> <laughs> there is that age. at a certain age it's just part of of the journey mm -hmm. so meredith tell me about uh also is there a story from the light side of active addiction you know it, a lot of the stories we tell on here are things like uh there is a client of mine that um got sober her her bottom was um babysitting for grandchildren when the parents came home early and she stuffed the six pack of beer that she'd been drinking in their oven and left and the mom preheated the oven the next day and it all the beer bottles blew up <laughs> But the very sad result is that she wasn't allowed to babysit her own grandchildren until she got into recovery and did something about her drinking. And the actual 
funny side of it is that you imagine this beer blowing up, you know, and nobody knows that it was there. So, um, and the podcast that I did with um, my personal friend and also a recovering food addict who lives in New Zealand was, well, I guess you always are a sister, a nun. And she was the mother superior when she gambled away all the convent's money. Oh, wow. And they told her that they were going to send her to a rehab, and she called it the rehab for naughty nuns. (laughs) (laughs) That's what that episode is titled, The Naughty Nun, because I just love it. I wish I had a funny story, but I don't know if I can. (laughs) None of those great escapades that. Food wise, oh, I think one of the worst kind of it's kind of a oh story was when I was a kid um and this was before I was in full-blown addiction but you know I had the signs I was always looking for something sweet and my mother had as an adult she struggled with her weight you know her whole adult life she had five kids and you know never recovered from having us I think um so she would have like diet aids and things but we were not allowed to touch them and one of the things she had that I really loved was a diet soda that was cherry flavored my very favorite thing and i remember going in the refrigerator one time and there was there was a a, like a baking pan sitting on the shelf and it had a a bunch of this soda must have been spilled into it and i pulled the pan out and i tipped it up and i started drinking soda out of it and it wasn't soda (laughs) there was was a chicken on the the shelf oh oh you drank a pan of chicken grease Oh, you know, I didn't get a whole lot down before I realized this is not sweet. But no, you know, no. I just, and it was something I couldn't tell anybody. Oh, my God. Right. You wouldn't. No, oh, no, oh, no, no. no. <laughs> No, when I was young, my dad worked for market research for General Foods, and he used to bring home all these packages that were products yet to come out on the shelf, and they would have product numbers on them. And when my parents went out for a date night, uh, they would leave instructions for my brother and sister to feed me and to make product 4423 for dessert. And one night they did that. It was supposed to be tapioca, which was one of my favorites. You know, General Foods was big for Jell-O. And I love Jell-O. I would still eat Jell-O if it was on my food plan. I loved it. My brother and sister both got really sick of jello and would you know hate the mm. thought of it and that night tapioca pudding was for dessert and i love that too i think i loved all sweet and the package number that they made was mashed potato <laughs> and we were asked to give reviews to my dad whenever we had a new product and i said that was not good tapioca dad <laughs> it was really mashed potatoes that i ate for dessert <laughs> Well, oh, well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy things. And mm-hmm. I also got into my mom's. Um, do you remember AIDS candies? Oh, yeah, that was one. So of the that things. was a weight loss thing. And I, I just saw candy, you know, mm-hmm. and they looked like candies. So I <laughs> ate a box of them. You know, <laughs> and they, were, they were laxative or something. They were laxative. Yeah, yeah, you got it. <laughs> yeah. Eating a box of uh, AIDS candy is not good for the digestive system. (laughs) No, neither was it good for the digestive system. The time I thought that the way to cure myself of my love of ice cream was to eat only ice cream for a week. And I included 
afloat and ice cream bars and things like that, but only ice cream, no other nutrition whatsoever for a week. And I did think at the end of the week that ice cream was horrible. And I that was just came to my mind because I spent a lot of time in the bathroom that week too. And then it lasted about two days. <laughs> and then I thought, oh, ice cream, that looks good. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Now, I do have another uh, kind of interesting story from early on in my my history as an artist. When I was in fourth grade, this all happened really young. Um, I was at the shore and I remember the moment I was walking across the dunes over to the neighbor's house from where we stayed. And I said to myself, when I grow up, I'm going to be a really good artist and nobody's going to know it mm. because I was so scared of being seen and being criticized. Um, there was just something in there, but it felt safe to me. No, I can still be a really good artist because I just won't nobody will know it. And um, I learned that actually from the neighbor I was going to go visit. It was an older man had been in a car accident with his parents. I think they both died. And I'm not sure if he was the driver. And he became reclusive, but he was a well-known artist in Philadelphia at the time. And what I saw was, even though he wasn't showing his work, he wasn't being seen in the art world anymore. He was still painting. And I knew he was a good artist. I recognized that. So I thought, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to, I'm going to be safe. I can be an artist because otherwise I think I would have given it up. I would have said, no, that's too much, too much visibility. You know, I'm so sad to hear that. And I know that it didn't stay that way because I had the great pleasure of going to a show of Meredith's work. That was last year. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, up at the University of Farmington. And it was an entire three-room gallery filled with her painting and printmaking. And one of the things that Meredith is doing now is print printing on fabric, which as a fiber artist thrilled me. And she has a studio mate who also designs and constructs clothing. So at Meredith's opening, she constructed a wonderful dress <laughs> For Meredith, out of all her own printed uh, red printing on white fabric or cream fabric, it was just marvelous. And the whole show, you know, from houses made out of paper constructed and books made out of printed paper. And like I said, paintings and prints and um, big wall hangings and jackets that were to die for. And I just loved going to that exhibit. I was very fortunate to go up to the exhibit with two friends before the actual opening. So we had the whole gallery to ourselves with Meredith. And it was a celebration of really being out there. And I know that at the opening, you spoke about the work too, which so I'm really glad that that young artist self came out of her shell to be very public and be known. And and it's the recovery. That's the recovery part. That That's also the recovery. Very much. And in this program that I'm in, I was incrementally brought into view, you know, that I, I got a voice. I have a voice now. And I think that was part of it. I didn't really have a voice for many years. You know, I was trying to please everybody around me, but I didn't have a voice. And um, having a voice and being willing to put the work out there and people could criticize it because that was my greatest fear. 
the criticism that I would just shrink back from it. And now I could put it out there and it didn't matter what anybody said. The joy of making it is so pure. When I was in art school myself, I studied under a man, Bob Munford, who was a known pop artist. He's died a few years ago and he did the posters for Barnum and Bailey Circus. And I got chosen to be one of just six people that studied printmaking with him personally. And I remember this is in my freshman year. I was chosen to be in that group of six in my senior year in college. But in my freshman year, I was in Drawing 101 with Bob. And he used to come around the room and pick up somebody's um, paper off of their pad of newsprint and then staple it onto the critique wall and say wonderful things about their work. And I waited weeks hoping that he would take rip my page off of from sitting on those art benches with the pads mm-hmm. of paper on the front and you're sitting on the back and and he did one day he came and he ripped off my sheet of newsprint and he took it up to the front of the room and he stapled it and I was a young 17 year old in my freshman year and I look up with glee and he says this is the worst oh no um preconceived notion of foreshortening I have ever seen. We were drawing from a live model. I was destroyed and my lips started to quiver. And he said, whose drawing is this? And I put my hand up and he said, come up here. So I stood up and then he looked at me with my lip quivering and he said, oh, you're not going to cry, are you? At which point you can know exactly what I did. I burst into tears and said, I'm not going to (laughs) cry. And I was so embarrassed. It's so fortunate that I went back. And, you know, I think art teachers in that in the 70s thought that they needed to give us backbone with tough criticism. I've heard it from um, Elizabeth Gilbert, too, talking about, mm-hmm. you know, writers. And she she says, don't go to college for writing. You know, like, <laughs> And I'm, I'm so glad that I did uh, create some backbone. And however, just like what I was saying about the inner critic, I never forgot. I mean, that's a long time ago. Yeah, you, you know, I that. can quote it. 50 years has gone by and I can still remember. I can't remember any great accolades that people gave me, but I can Mm -hmm. remember that one because it almost cost me going into the arts at all. Yeah. So recovery is good for our finding our voice. Oh, that's the one other thing that I wanted to say as we draw to a close is I've just finished this last week that I make art quilts and When you're making a quilt, you have a top of the quilt, which is really the design. So there's lots of finish work still to be done in this series. And I've completed the top of the seventh of seven quilts in a series that are the Comfort Her art quilt series. The the Comfort Her is spelled with a capital H-E-R on the end for human engagement and resiliency. And they're all images to empower those who have been abused. And the very first one, I did an image of a woman riding a polar bear in the tundra, and it's titled Finding Her Voice, that it was that incredible a journey that you go into the wasteland, (laughs) you know, go into the frozen north (laughs) to begin to find my voice and in artistic experience. Mm -hmm. So any last 
comments for our listeners, Meredith? Um, well, I want to say coming to this point in my life, I'm really interested in getting my artwork out into the world. And if anybody is in Maine, is near Farmington, Maine, give a call, come on over. If there's something you like, we'll make a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, and you know what? I, you've just reminded me to let people know it. I've got this wonderful opportunity for you, Meredith, and for all the other artists that I'm interviewing during season three. The first man that I interviewed was part of air it's artists in recovery in the UK. It's Newcastle, England, and it's a co-op that they formed there and they have a digital presence online and their digital master is going to create a gallery of images for the people interviewed during this season. And so it will be for you to put up works of art and to sell as well as to be seen. And so I will give you that information so that you can get your art up there and, um, Thank you to Russ Coleman, who made that possible. And I've yet to talk directly to the digital artist so we can get that all going um, as we launch season three. And and I'm also on Instagram as Two Imagine Studios, T-W-O imagine studios. Great, great. So Two Imagine Studios, and we will put that in the show notes as well as if you want, I'll put your phone number in the show notes if people are in Maine, as you said, and um, and this podcast will go as far and wide as Spotify or Apple Podcasts and people mm-hmm. listen from all over. Yeah, I've got a lot of videos on um, YouTube also under my name, Meredith Mustard, some how-tos and all kinds of things. Great. So, yeah. Thank you Thanks. so much, Meredith. This has been great fun. Yes, yeah, been fun for me too. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Oh, my. I'm Nancy Adair, the host of LTGW where we explore the stories from the dark and the light side of both addiction and recovery. Our show is currently free to listen to and it's advertisement free. Therefore, we're relying on your support to keep bringing you these powerful stories.